podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. It's a pleasure to be with you here in person at Blackburn and also to those of you who are watching online. This morning I want to do something a little bit risky. I want to talk about disgust. Disgust. If you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, you'll know that disgust is one of the five core emotions that gets animated as a character in this movie. And this movie is about a young girl called Riley and each of these emotions exist within her head. Disgust is this incredibly highly opinionated, extremely honest voice in the mind of Riley that prevents her from getting poisoned, both physically and socially. In the movie, Disgust's catchphrase is, well, I just saved your life, yeah, you're welcome, if you've ever seen the movie, which points to the way in which Disgust can be an incredibly helpful and useful emotion. I mean, when you go to your fridge and you open it up and you see those leftovers with black mold on, disgust is the thing that stops you from seriously poisoning yourself, right? So disgust is a useful thing. One of the interesting things about disgust is that we aren't born with it, as demonstrated by small children who go through this extraordinary phase where they're willing to put literally anything into their mouths. Anything that is within reach, kids of a certain age will suck on, like dirt and sand and plants and random rocks. They will even do things like this, start at the bottom of the escalator in Eastland with their tongue on the glass and go all the way up to the top. I speak from personal experience, just saying. (laughs) But then, this really interesting thing happens, because at a certain point, kids start getting picky, don't they? They suddenly get locked down into this incredible narrow range of things that they're actually willing to put in their mouths. And this is because we learn disgust just like we learn a language. We learn disgust. We soak it up from the people around us, from our environment, and we learn a whole range of cues that tell us what is disgusting and what is not. But while disgust is a universal human emotion, every human being experiences it, it's actually culturally conditioned. We don't see this feature in many emotions. The core triggers for things like happiness and sadness and fear and anger tend to be pretty stable and pretty consistent across cultures. But actually, disgust isn't like that. A fact you can't help but notice when you go to a place like the night market in Bangkok, where a wonderful stallholder will attempt to tempt you with various delectable insects and worms and spiders for your dinner. The psychologist who's primarily working in this area is a man named Paul Rosen. And he distinguishes between two types of disgust. The first one is core disgust. This is primarily to do with that question of what you will and will not put in your mouth. And the second type of disgust he calls social and moral disgust. 
This kind of disgust is triggered when something unclean, sociologically speaking, crosses a boundary and comes into contact with a group that's identified as clean. But why on earth does this matter? And why am I torturing you talking about disgust this morning? Well, it matters because social and moral disgust regulates our relationships. It regulates our relationships. And we're looking at this theme over the coming months called Be With. And in order to be with people, we are constantly caught in the push and pull of disgust psychology. We don't talk about it like that, but it's about personal hygiene, it's how people keep their houses, it's their table manners, it's what they do with their money and what kind of behaviour they're willing to engage in. It matters because we often think about sin and moral failings through the lens of the psychology of disgust. In the church, we're constantly wrestling with this idea, aren't we, of purity and holiness and sinfulness and uncleanliness. And it matters because when you look to the life of Jesus, Jesus is constantly interacting with a whole range of social and moral factors uh, that come out of this psychology of disgust. So this morning I want to do something very simple. I just want to take four experiments that Paul Rosen conducted to look at some of his key findings and then to apply them to a particular text in Mark 2 where we see Jesus interacting with some people at a meal. I have to say that on Friday night we had some friends over for dinner and one of them said to me, Katrina, do you practice your sermons on Christopher, my husband? And I said, gosh, no, living with me is a hard enough thing as it is. Like, I don't want to torture him in that terrible kind of way. But I have to say, last night, sitting on the couch, thinking about my sermon, I tested out some ideas and his feedback was, oh my goodness, don't say that. So... <laughs> I'm really sorry, but in order to talk about disgust, I've actually got to talk about some disgusting things. But it's, it's fine, you'll be fine. The first experiment I want to talk about is this. As you sit here this morning, you'll notice that your mouth is lubricated by saliva. In fact, you are constantly swallowing your own saliva. But what, for a minute, if I just got you to spit into a very clean and sterile cup and then invited you to drink it? Would you do it? How are you feeling? Feeling a bit disgusted? Yeah, yuck, gross, huh? This experiment highlights that while there is no physical difference between the spit that's in our mouths and the spit that's in our cup, actually there's this huge psychological difference between those two things, isn't there? As soon as you spit something out of the boundary of our own bodies, it becomes psychologically a whole entire different kind of thing. Like it becomes alien, it becomes other, it becomes this contaminant that we don't want to put back into our bodies. Our spit is a contaminant. This experiment illustrates that disgust, if I can get my clicker to work, it's always a bit... Oh, gosh, I've gone too far. That, that's the one that I want. Sorry. I'm going the wrong way. I told you this would be a disaster of a sermon. So, this experiment illustrates that disgust is primarily a boundary psychology. It's about the boundary, right? The boundary between the spit that's in our mouth and the spit that is outside of us. It's about how our physical and our social you know, containments 
begin to cross and interact and move in between these boundaries, rendering something from pure, when it's in our mouth, to suddenly unclean and therefore disgusting. And if you think about this, this is a game that you have been playing for a very long time. Do you remember at recess you used to go out into the playground and play chasey? And sometimes when you played chasey, someone had cooties or germs or boy germs or girl germs, whatever it is you called it, and then they would run around and they would touch someone and they would pass the cooties on and then they would pass it on to someone else. And it's not just kids. You see, adults continue to play this game into adulthood. It's the same kind of game we play, frankly, with some pretty terrible consequences, particularly when one group who has power and privilege labels another group with less power and privilege in a way that renders them despised or unclean or disgusting. And we see this kind of boundary psychology at play in things like the racist segregation of the United States that divided up public spaces, like bathrooms and schools and buses, into places for black people and places for white people so that the unclean contaminants of one group couldn't touch the pure characteristics of the other. We see the same ideas, actually, in Nazi ideas about racial purity, which, of course, ultimately gave rise to the final solution, the Holocaust, where the Nazis sought to permanently distance themselves from the contamination that they thought was in Jewish people. And if you've read the book of Leviticus, you remember that Leviticus is constantly telling us a whole range of things we need to do to be careful not to go from being clean to being unclean. And if we find ourselves in that situation, Leviticus is a whole bunch of advice for how we can get clean again. So disgust is a psychology that is concerned with boundaries and contamination, how something that is clean becomes unclean. The second experiment goes like this. Now, imagine that I offer you a glass of juice, but just before I give it to you, I take a cockroach and I put it into the juice and I twirl it around and then I take it out and give you the juice. How are you feeling? Are you going to drink the juice? No. If you're a sane person, probably not. This is, again, a simple case of the idea of contamination at work. The bug touches the juice and it ruins it. The juice is now unclean, polluted and contaminated. But in his laboratory, Paul Rosen goes a step further with the ruined juice. He says to someone, OK, what if I filtered the juice, like through one of those filters that filters tap water? Would you drink the juice now? And again, most people say, no, thank you. And so he says, well, what if I filtered the juice and then I boiled the juice and then I filtered the juice again? Would you drink the juice? And most people are sitting there shaking their heads saying, absolutely not. What's interesting about this is that people refuse to drink the juice despite the fact they know rationally there's nothing wrong with the juice. That actually it's probably cleaner than most of the tap water they drink on a daily basis. Intellectually, they understand that the boiled and filtered juice is clean, but they still can't bring themselves to drink the juice. What Rosen's research helps us to see so vividly is that the judgments of contamination are a whole entire set of rules unto themselves that often defy logic and reason. 
And sometimes these judgments are catastrophically permanent. The judgment is catastrophic because it renders something unsalvageable. Like, here's an example. You're at a restaurant, you're having a lovely plate of spaghetti, and suddenly you find a hair in it. Now, when you give it back to the waiter, what do you want him to do? You don't want him to take the hair out and give you back the same plate of scoop spaghetti. You want an entirely new plate of spaghetti, don't you? And that's because we've made a judgment that because of the hair, that plate of spaghetti is now permanently contaminated. I remember when I was a teenager in youth group, and one night we got divided into boys and girls, and we all knew what that meant. It meant we were going to talk about sex. And the person who was talking about sex said to, said to us this, sex is kind of like, well, two people have sex and it's like two wet tissues come together. Have you ever heard this? If you have sex before you're married, what will happen is that your soul will forever be bound to another person and you will carry that person around with you forever because like two wet tissues, you can't pull the tissues apart, can you? It's impossible. Now, what's interesting about that is that we don't talk about many other moral infractions through the lens of purity and disgust. If you tell a lie, or if you indulge in a plot of planet-destroying shopping this Christmas, no one is going to accuse you of some permanent moral failure. We'll say, okay, so you told a lie, it was a mistake. It was just a mistake. But when it comes to sex, we exclusively talk about sex through the lens of purity and disgust, like it's permanent, like the juice has a bug in it. If you have sex before you're married, the attribution of permanence kicks in. If you lose your virginity before you're married, you can't get it back. It's a catastrophic loss that can't be rehabilitated, which is interesting because we practice a faith that places grace and forgiveness and repentance at the heart of it. And yet, at the same time, we've kind of identified sexual sin as being uniquely beyond those things. What I want you to notice this morning is that we don't talk about very many other sins like that. We don't use disgust and purity psychology to regulate most sin in this way. Which, of course, is part of the reason why all of the questions about sexuality have always and will forever be hot topics in the church. Why we feel like so much is at stake when we talk about sex. Because when we talk about it through the lens of purity and disgust, the judgments that we're making, we know have consequences. Somehow we think sexual sins are kind of catastrophically permanent in some way. At least that's the teaching that I grew up with in the church. The third experiment goes like this, and I'm so sorry. These are actually brownies. You might call them chocolate sausages, okay? But they're brownies. And they're not baked in the usual way in those square or rectangular pans. And so what Paul Rosen does is he offers these chocolate sausages slash brownies to people in his experiment, and unsurprisingly, they say, no thanks, not hungry. <laughs> This experiment demonstrates the attribution of a similarity. Similarity, that even if something looks like it's contaminated, 
we find it disgusting. The part of the problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus is that he didn't look like a holy person. He kept spending so much of his time with people like prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And because he hung out with people like that, it looked like he was a sinner. Through the lens of purity and disgust, sin becomes a kind of contagion. Someone only has to get close to someone either you know, visually or socially to be infected by it. I've got a wine rack in my house, and you'll be unsurprised to know my wine rack has wine in it. And one day, one of my relatives came to visit me, and she said, do you hide that when members of your church come to visit? <laughs> and I said, no, no, I don't. And she looked at me with this profound concern on her face. You see, her concern was that the presence of the wine in my home could contaminate me that people could think certain things about my relationship to alcohol and the way that I live my life. Jesus directly addressed this question in his response to the Pharisees about what it takes to make you unclean. You remember, he says that the things that defile you don't come from the outside. The things that defile us come from within. It's not who you hang around, it's not how many bottles of wine are on your wine rack. The thing that defiles come from within. The final experiment involves an apple, you'll be relieved to know. Imagine an apple coming into contact with anything that you could possibly think of that you, you think of as kind of gross or contaminated. It might be the water from the Yarra River. It might be mold or it could be worms. The point is, is that if you bring this beautiful apple in relationship to this contaminant, the food is rendered inedible. The pollutant dominates over the pure. Paul Rosen calls this negativity dominance, by which he means all the power in our minds lives in the contaminant, not in the pure thing. All the power is in, in the contaminant, and this relationship is not bi-directional. The goodness of the apple doesn't render the water from the Yarra River pure or drinkable. It is a one-directional, catastrophic association. Now imagine that the apple is the church. Negative dominance suggests that the moment that the church makes contact with the uncleanliness of the world, the church gets infected. The power is with the world. Therefore, the church can't help but being contaminated. There's this kind of talk that I think happens in, um, in the church where we're so deeply concerned about the polluting properties of the world that we start to want to build our walls higher and higher and higher so that the church can become this self-contained enclave of purity and holiness where the pollutants that are in the world can't touch us. But the muck is all around. We can't avoid it, can we? In the Bible, we see this kind of attitude mostly reflected in that of the Pharisees. When people come into contact with a contaminated person, like a tax collector or a sinner, they assume negative dominance. They assume that the power to infect rests with the tax collectors and the sinners. 
it doesn't even occur to them that Jesus, the bringer of light into the world, the bringer of life where there is, is death, might actually have the power to infect the tax collectors and the sinners with his purity and holiness and goodness. You see, here's an astonishing thing. Jesus reverses the vector of contamination. Jesus reverses the vector of contamination. The woman with the issue of blood comes to Jesus and she touches just the fringes of his coat and what happens? Not that Jesus becomes unclean, but that she is healed and made well. Jesus goes to the place where the lepers are and Jesus reaches out and he touches them and he heals them. Jesus isn't made unclean. The vector of contamination goes from Jesus to the person. He contaminates that person with his healing, with his wholeness, and with his grace. Isn't that what we're hoping for? Isn't that what we're longing for? A healer and a restorer who is so much more powerful than the things that are squeezing the life out of us than the source of our own contamination, than the source of our own sin. You see, this reversal is at the heart of what it means to be the church. We are to be salt. We are to be light, Scripture says, that goes out into the world to infect it. And if we can't grasp this reversal, if we're going to default to this naive, instinctive, unreflective purity judgment, whose only answer is that Christians should withdraw from the world and withdraw from the people that God loves so much that he sent his only son to save them. That we are making a choice to live in fear, fear of contamination. When we see other people as vectors of contamination, we have begun a journey towards their dehumanization. We are making a choice to move towards people, dehumanising their capacity as image bearers. When we start to see people as vectors of contamination, we begin a journey that renders loving our neighbours absolutely and utterly impossible. Because you cannot love someone and be distant from them at exactly the same time. If sin is contagious, extending love and hospitality is impossible. But here's my encouragement. Scripture tells us in 1 John 4, the one who is in you, who is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus reverses the vector of contamination. He is light shining in the darkness. And the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. So having tortured you with a range of terrible, disgust experiments this morning, I want to finish with our Bible reading. And I hope that you will hear it with new ears this morning. The reading is from Mark 2, beginning in chapter 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. He was walking along, and he saw Levi, 
Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And as he sat at dinner at Levi's house with many tax collectors and many sinners who were sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for they too were also his followers, a scribe of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and said to his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. This same story is repeated in Matthew chapter 9. And at the end of that telling, Jesus adds these words. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann points to two traditions within the Old Testament. They are the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition. As you read the Old Testament, you can begin to see the tension between these two traditions. There's this extraordinary debate that's going on in the scriptures. What is more important? The tradition that emphasizes the holiness and the set-apartness of God? This is the tradition we find in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Or the tradition that we find in prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which rebel against this tradition to claim that true fasting is actually showing mercy. A tradition that calls out the hypocrisy of pious worship, that avoids and denies the reality of the injustice and suffering of the orphan, of the widow, and of the alien. And what's interesting is that this debate doesn't actually get resolved in the Old Testament. It's carried forward into the New Testament. And we see it echoed in the relationship that Jesus had between the Pharisees and himself and his followers. It's kind of like a manifestation of this debate. And the Pharisee who represents the priestly tradition wanted to do everything that they could to keep Israel holy. Their intentions were incredibly good. And Jesus, well, you know, Jesus kept crossing all of the boundaries of purity and sin. He kept touching unclean people and allowing them to touch him. He kept eating and drinking in acts of radical table fellowship. And when the Pharisees come and they confront him just like in that Bible reading, Jesus actually cites the prophetic tradition as his response. He says, quoting the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the sacrifice he's evoking here is the whole system of sacrificial worship that's centered around the temple in the Jerusalem. But I also can't help but wonder if the kind of sacrifice he's talking about is the way that through purity and disgust psychology, we sacrifice people by dehumanizing them. And what's interesting is that Jesus could have said something much less radical. He could have actually said, well, God desires mercy and sacrifice. But he didn't say that. He says something quite exclusionary. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. 
Now, you might think that Jesus is kind of throwing out the bathwater with the baby here, that he's rejecting holiness and the priestly tradition, but I don't actually think that's what he's doing. What I'd like to suggest is that he's actually reinterpreting the holiness tradition. He's saying that you think that holiness is about keeping a whole bunch of unclean things and unclean people away from you. But actually, holiness is about being willing to cross the boundary to embrace what is unclean. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I mean, Jesus, who was the only perfect person who has and will ever walk the earth, Jesus, who is spectacularly pure and holy, aren't we supposed to do what Jesus did? I think Jesus understood better than we do that when we place moral questions of sin at the forefront, we are actually foreclosing the opportunity of being with people. And people can feel that, can't they? They can feel when the primary way that we see them is through the lens of purity and disgust. They can sense that in some very real way we're denying them their humanity. But when we embrace people first and foremost, when we lead with the light we carry, then we create this extraordinary space for mercy, for peace, for grace, and for wholeness to flood in and do its work. We can lead with love, and we can treat everyone like a brother and a sister, and then we can trust that that will open up the door for us to have a conversation about what is killing them and what is holding them back. So I hope that we would follow the way of Jesus this extraordinary boundary crosser who reaches out to embrace us in our uncleanliness and invites us to go and embrace the whole world. This is the theme of Advent. Today is the first Sunday in Advent and all of the metaphors and all of the imagery and all of the languages is resonating with this message. Emmanuel, God with us. God comes to us not with a peg on his, on his nose into this world, disgusted by the situation that we find ourselves in. He comes with a heart full of mercy, a heart overflowing with grace. And he longs to contaminate us with his hope, with his healing, and with his wholeness. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that there is none like Jesus. Thank you for sending us your one and only son to love us back to life. Thank you for making a way for us, a broken and sinful people. You are the only way that we know that can possibly save us from ourselves, God, from the mess that our lives has fallen into. And so this morning, as we sit here in the presence of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a new work in us, that you would give us eyes to see that you look upon each and every person here this morning through the lens of mercy and love. 
that your desire for us is that we might know more mercy in our lives, that we might be freed in forgiveness, and that we might experience the wholeness that comes out of finding ourselves embraced fully and completely in your love. Thank you, God, for the healing power of the good news of Jesus. Thank you that it is your kingdom that we have an opportunity to align our lives in and to find the hope that we're longing for. Our prayer is that this Christmas, as we tell this story again and again, it might be a form of positive, beautiful contamination, contaminating our friends and our family and our community so they too might hear this story and rejoice in its freedom and in its gift. In Jesus' name we pray.